You're tuned into 9 to 5 Work Rebels with your host, Ebony Gale. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Gems in Comms podcast series special, brought to you by 9 to 5 Work Rebels and in association with Hanson Search Recruitment, which is the award-winning international executive search consultancy. My name is Ebony Gale, and I am your host for today, and I am delighted to be introducing Katrina Marshall, who is a professional, a writer, a journalist. She's also very much involved in a founding member of the PRTA's Race, Ethnicity and Equity Board, and very much into, you know, race, culture, intersectionality and public speaking as well. So welcome, Katrina. Thank you, Ebony. It was really nice of you to um, invite me to have a chat. You know how we do when we have our conversations, they can go on for a while. So uh-huh. I warn you now to rein me in if you need to, but it's really good to be here. Thank you. <laughs> no, it's great to have you. I really, really appreciate it. So just as a little bit of an intro, this is a podcast series special that we're doing, which is obviously called Gems in Comms. And the reason why is we are looking at highlighting, you know, Black Asian ethnic minorities within the PR and communication industry and shine a light on these gems, okay? Because I feel like some of us are hidden in a way, some of of us are not, some of us are kind of out there, but for the most part, you want everyone to recognise that, you know, there are some amazing gems in comms that are particularly non-white in an industry that is 92% white. So this is our time to give ourselves our flowers, essentially. So giving you your flowers, which is, you know, your recognition of... Yeah, you've been an awesome comms professional, a journalist, you've got lots of skills. So let's dig into it. So let's start off with, tell us about yourself, you know, and what you do. At the moment, I work on the comms team for the Cambridgeshire Community Services NHS Trust. Uh, it's a very large trust and I'm in charge of a lot of the social media scheduling for Luton Adult Services, Peterborough, Milton Keynes. Um, and ambulatory services. That's just a really fancy way of saying that for every point of contact that our patients have, there is an in- intervention of some sort um, from the communications team to make sure that it's as engaging as possible. Yeah. Um, I've been doing that for a few months and I am genuinely enjoying it. I wouldn't have seen myself as an NHS comms person, but when the opportunity came along, I thought, hmm, let's try that. And I'm enjoying yeah. it so far, for sure. And oh, I work remotely, which means that my commute is very, very short. Which is very important. Very <laughs> Your bedroom important. to living room. Brilliant. Exactly. <laughs> bedroom to kitchen table. <laughs> that sounds good. Now that sounds really good. So have you always wanted to work in uh, comms industry or did you kind of fall into it? What was your traction to the industry? I'm not in the traditional sense. So I, I feel your listenership going down the toilet already. No um, way. <laughs> but not, I mean, not in the traditional sense of how comms is currently defined. No. So during my, my gap year um, after, you know, after high school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, I thought of going into business management. I just wanted to do something that made, made sure I could have a briefcase and wear a suit. I thought that was what being successful looked like boy, was I wrong. Um, It was either that or do a degree in dance. And you know, our parents want us to be lawyers, doctors, or engineers, and if not wear a suit and dance wasn't going to, wasn't going to cut it. So a family member encouraged me to apply for um, an associate degree in mass communications. I was accepted to do that and dance. And I chose that. And the rest is history. I started off telling stories and I'm very proud to say that Despite the different permutations it has taken, I haven't stopped being a storyteller. 
Oh, well, that's brilliant. brilliant. And I think it's interesting as well, because you said you started out with dance. And that's me. My passion was dance. I used to go to the Brit Performing Arts School and I did a bit of um, like dance there. And I, but again, like you, it was more like a, this is more hobby. It's not necessarily like a real world situation. Although in hindsight now, I'm like, actually, it's, it's quite a viable uh, uh, way to go. But and I also, yeah. And I also yeah, think hindsight. that as much as we have hobbies, um, there is um, a misdirection somewhere along the lines we were told that we had to make money off the things we enjoy and we don't necessarily um it would be nice if we did because that yeah. gives us the sweet spot but i think when it comes down to it i like to be able to separate what i enjoy from what makes me money yes there are a few things that meet in the middle and that's awesome but yeah. i think that if it's always about the financial imperative we lose the magic and yeah we've been we've been out in these covid streets for about three years now mm-hmm. we need some magic Definitely. Yeah, definitely. No, I get it. And I, I think that's interesting what you said, though, about getting the balance there, because I feel like it's about getting paid for doing what I like to do. That's what absolutely. I yeah, absolutely. Because otherwise, I've never really been the one to just go down the financial incentive, which is probably why I didn't end up just being a doctor or a lawyer, you know, because I wanted to do something that was a bit more interesting to me, you know. So, yeah, I, I kind of get that. I get that. So, I wanted to kind of touch on, of course, lived experiences within the industry. Now, this is where it gets really interesting, right? Because <laughs> it's all about sharing stories. Yeah, and it's a safe space to share your story. Um, so one of the first questions I always like to ask my guests are, when did you become aware of your ethnicity? Particularly for you, because you were born, you were born abroad, right? And then coming to the UK. So it's going to be, and yours will be different, I'm sure. Um... I think it was the day I realized that I was treated differently in job interviews. Right. I was treated with a type of trifling, silly disrespect that would never have been meted out to a rich white man or Mm. a young white girl. And um, as much as there are aspects of living here, because I was born and raised in Barbados, as you know, Mm -hmm. um, as much as there are aspects of living here that I continue to enjoy, Britain never lets me forget that I'm black. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think people don't get that sometimes. So you're saying as soon as you hit the job market, essentially, is when you start essentially, to really yeah. see that. Because, it, yeah, because, and I have to admit that there must have been a degree of naivety in there where I thought that if I didn't get a job, it was because I wasn't good enough. And yeah. that was only part of it. Yeah. Um, I think I realized very early on that the application process was laborious uh punitive and detail oriented and designed to subjugate in ways that had nothing to do with the job itself Mm. Uh, and then when you finally speak to someone who's actually perhaps in the role or if i'm lucky enough to get the role i realize "Mm, they sent me through the ringer as if i was going to be launching ships into space when essentially (laughs) i was going to be a dog's body with a nice title yeah and the and the liberties that were taken um, in terms of what people said with, um, as our sister in Kelechi says, with her whole, with their whole chest, their things whole that were chest. said to me with their, with, with people's whole chest, they would never have dared say to somebody else. And that's yeah. when I realized, well, hang on, maybe I'm good enough, but I'm not good enough at playing their game. Right. And that was a much, much longer learning curve. I yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So when you say that, because I see you listen to the Say Your Mind podcast, that's my girl too. I, I do, I do, I, like I do. I love her little talks about, you know, the the, the HR, Sally. <laughs> I think it's hilarious. Sally and HR has become one of my dearest friends. It's <laughs> <laughs> okay. But yeah, how you mentioned that about people saying anything, can you give an example of something that really stood out to you that was like, whoa, 
you know, made you kind of sit up and, speak, you know, think without, I don't have to name drop anybody or anything, but. You know. I was about to say, are you insured for this answer? <laughs> <laughs> I am ready for the answer. But I want to just make sure you feel comfortable because I'm like, let's lay it out there and let us, we've got to learn from everything, don't we? We're going to get yeah. changes if we don't share what's really going on out here. I've spoken about this incident before because whether I want to admit it or not, it has had um, a distinctly lasting impression on my headspace right. and on the way I value myself. Uh, I went up for a maternity cover director of comms position where I was asked to talk about my previous experience. Now, for context, I, had, I was, as they say, fresh off the boat. I had just come back. Um, to the UK. And I say back because I did uni here. Um, I did a, a bit of work experience here. Mm-hmm. And then I started working for the Commonwealth Broadcast Foundation and then the BBC and then ITV. Yeah. So um, I went home to get warm. <laughs> and then I came back. <laughs> Bring me next time, please. Uh, yeah, I know, girl, there's space <laughs> in the suitcase, believe me. So I went up for this role um, that the uh, recruitment agency that I still work with um, put me up for. And I don't think I was as good at selling myself as one would expect a journalist to be. But what people tend to forget is that I'm used to asking the questions. I never really have to worry about how I answer them. So that's been a learning curve for me. But the seminal moment in the interview was when I was asked to sing a jingle that I had created for a client in Barbados. It was a case of you say you've produced jingles, so prove it. Sing it. What? <clears throat> and I have never forgotten that because sitting next to the person who was interviewing me, whose ethnicity and sex, I'm sure you can figure out by now, was a woman, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a mixed race woman, mm-hmm. who said nothing. Um, and I, I see later on down in the questions, we're going to get to allyship in a bit. But to me, it wasn't just spiteful because... I pushed back and I was told, no, you can give me a couple of bars. And I pushed back again. No, you can sing a little bit of something. So it wasn't a case where it wasn't a case where they didn't realize that it was offensive. And when I pointed it out, they were like, okay, maybe no, they kept pushing. So this was just a desire, I think, to make me feel small. And they succeeded. Mm. Um, The interview went downhill after that. And needless to say, not only did I not get the job, but I didn't want it after that. Yeah. But going forward, you know, those kind of moments where you have the perfect comeback 20 minutes later. Well, this is now the perfect comeback nearly three years later. I still think about it. I still think about all the things I would have said. But when I think about how lacking in cultural understanding you have to be to ask a a black woman whose grandparents would have been alive and around at a time when Josephine Baker and a few other um, black entertainers in deep south in the states and across Europe were asked to dance and make monkey noises bare chested on stage in Paris. When you think about the fact that that's within living memory, um, there isn't any excuse for that kind of ignorance. Yeah. And the lack of support from the other person on the panel, um, I've just never forgotten it. Um, and it makes me wonder what I could have done better, even though in that moment it wasn't for me to no. do better yeah it wasn't for you i mean who does that mm-hmm. i've never oh, heard yeah. of anybody being asked to sing a jingle for a director of content yeah just to prove that i had actually done it unbelievable 
unbelievable. Like, yeah, and it's it seems it seems small. No, it's it not. seems it's small it's in comparison to some of the other. Yeah, um, and I know that quite a few other people in comms who are intersectional in several ways, uh, feminist, LGBT, immigrant, whatever. I know that they're the, the the prism through which they see their own discrimination is much wider and broader than mine. Mm. But I don't know if you or any of your um, viewers and listeners would have remembered the case of Brett Kavanaugh trying to be confirmed as a U.S. Supreme Court justice and the woman who accused him of raping her when she was 15 is actually a brain scientist. I'm getting somewhere with this story, Ebony, so stay yeah. with me. I'm with you. <laughs> and Dr. Christine Blasey Ford said that she didn't remember the specifics of the event, but she remembered how it made her feel. And it's not just a Maya Angelou quote where people talk about people will never forget how you made them feel. It's actually biomechanical. How you feel about something is embedded in your hippocampus. And my hippocampus has never forgotten how I felt mm. in that moment. Mm. And, and when people talk about waking up and choosing violence, I'm sure that man doesn't think that he woke up and chose violence, but he set in motion a domino effect of having to big myself up and remind myself that I deserve better. Mm. After a, a formidable career in Barbados where I never had to wonder if I was good enough because I worked hard at it and I was rewarded for that. Mm. Exactly. But then you come to the hearing, you find you're asked to sing a jingle. It's just so ridiculous. Oh my goodness me. And that's just the worst. That's the worst of the other things that I don't mention because yeah. you and I both know if we were to talk about it every time, that's all we would talk about. Talk about, yeah. There are always little intricacies that you may, but may go over someone else's head that, you know, we'll, won't go over ours because we'll understand, you know, the inference. So I'm actually glad that you said that. I know you're about to ask another question, but I yeah. just feel like there is, there's a natural segue into talking about race and ethnicity in my career in general. And I'm never sure how to address that. I like to declare my hand kind of early. Mm. On one hand, I don't like to cede that much power to anyone in a perceived position of authority. I like to think that I'm a badass because I'm a badass because I'm a yeah. badass, full stop. Yeah. Yeah. But given the foregoing... The obvious answer is yes, mm. race and ethnicity has held me back. But I think it was more than that. And that's why, as rare as it is that I speak to audiences like this, I chose to do it with you because I feel like so much nuance is lost it in is. conversations like this. Yeah, it, It's more than just you are black, therefore you have not progressed. Yeah. I think... At that point in my career, I was getting to know an industry that I was only adjacent to. Um, I was invited to, dis to deliver a lecture to the students of a university that one of my uni lecturers worked at. And that's how I got into comms. It wasn't right. a natural kind of arrive in here and decide that comms is what I wanted to do. Mm. And I wasn't, it's not to say I wasn't warmly welcomed. I was. Mm. Um, and I was encouraged and supported. But at that stage, I was relearning how to package my skills in a way that I never needed to before. I was learning how to put aside the historical humility that people of a certain age and culture tend to be raised with. Mm. And that mentality that said, do good and someone will come and find you. Mm. I was also learning with the greatest of respect that the well-meaning advice I received that from many white industry leaders had my best interests at heart, but they were not fit for purpose. I mm. needed a whole different set of weapons to fight 
the racial side of making incomes. Yeah. And I think it's important to point that out because it speaks to the reality that our experiences are not a monolith. No, and exactly. mine I consider to be unique, not because I need self-pity or any pity for that matter, but not everyone's experience is the same. No, absolutely not. And I think that's, that's quite important. That's why I also want to do this podcast to get people's different experiences out there. Like the person I spoke to earlier today, she is from um, her background is Chinese. So she was talking about the fact that sometimes she gets to lean into her stereotypes because her stereotypes are not necessarily bad stereotypes. It's like, you know, the tiger bar, mm. things that are not seen as bad. Whereas I'm saying to her, for us, we can't lean into our stereotypes because our stereotypes could be things like, oh, well, she's, she must be a toilet attendant because she's black. Well, what we're going to do, we're not going to lean into that, you know, or she's young and black female. So I feel like um, there are different nuances that are going to affect everybody. You mentioned your experience that you had as, you know, going for that particular role, but also in the fact that you spoke about getting advice from, you know, senior leaders who are white. Again, they have no um, recollection and understanding of how we have to kind of manoeuvre within the industry whilst, you know, sitting by, a, you know, a few good seminars and having a good chat about things is good. But, you know, no one can see anything through our lens unless you've got our lens to look through. And I think that's what's an important part that gets missed a lot of the time. And then people think they can just change a rule and then that means everything's fine. But no, we're dealing with, whilst we rock up in our you know, authentic selves, also code switching, you know, to fit in, you know, at times, then they are not thinking that we have to, we have so many different layers that we have to deal with and put oh on and goodness. take off and manage. On it. a lot. It's a lot. Speak on it. The There's layers, the layers, girl. The, the layers, layers are something immense. And I think people <clears> don't really get that as much. So even you speaking about your experience as, um, you know, the being asked to sing, I mean, some people will look at that and think, oh, well, that's kind of funny, isn't it? No, it's not really funny because actually there's much more racial connotation behind that and the history of, of what our people went through. And then for me to be qualified within my job, which doesn't require singing whatsoever, uh, there's no part on the job spec that would require that. So why am I asked to perform? I'm not a performing monkey. Like, what are we doing here? These type of things really do get my bad boiling because it's like, what is going on out here? But um, yes, I, I feel like, as you said, race and ethnicity has obviously held you back in the workplace in terms of, you know, career progression. But that's never through our, any fault of our own. We rock up with our qualifications, with our experience, with our willingness. And we're met by others who have their own preconceived ideas, their own notions, their own stereotypes, which they then choose to kind of put on others, which is what happens. You know, you get put into a, a box sometimes because of whatever bringing that person's had and their, uh, you know, engagement or their views of black people it might just be from watching a TV show. So, you know, you've got all those sort of things to, to go with, along with the way that people make you feel by doing little things. I think it's like in the UK, it's very, you know, covert racism. Whereas in America, you know, to me, it seems like it's very in your face. <clears throat> Over here, it's very covert and there was, there's things that will go under the radar if you're not kind of switched on to it. And I feel like um, that's something that a lot of the UK people kind of use as a crux to kind of keep them going. Like, oh, well, we're not really racist. Absolutely. Well, it's like, well, no, you're not racist. Absolutely. You know, but then you'll say, the tabloids will say, oh, we're not racist. But then look at all your headlines about Meghan Markle and, and everybody else in, in the royal family. Then it's compared to somebody else. Oh, but we're not racist. You know, we're just pointing at this. So it's just like, yeah, but see, I always say that your 
Yeah, I always say that the UK racism is like it's rain. You know, people talk about that fine rain that soaks yes. you right through. Yes. You don't really notice you're getting wet until you get home and you're soaked down you're to soaked. the bone. It's Absolutely. the same thing. You don't really realize that you're dealing with the death of a thousand racial cuts until you get home and you're yeah. psychologically bleeding. Absolutely. You have no bandwidth for your husband or your wife. You have very, very little patience with your child. You're not much fun to be with when you get out with your people. And yeah. then you don't, and, and people don't make the connection between the two things yeah absolutely absolutely it's really interesting i mean so you're saying in that situation i would have asked you how was it handled obviously your handling was i don't want the job and i don't blame you and you know it didn't go any further that's fine so have you seen anything in the actual workplace then that you've witnessed yeah um it was again the subtlety um it was the subtlety of cultural references that I couldn't possibly have known and and rather than acknowledge and perhaps learn from each other my cultural background was seen as something that should have been ridiculed um the tone that was taken with me by a a line manager using um okay so just for context I live in Birmingham I'm getting used to people calling me bab I know that that's a cultural thing. When yeah. I lived in Leicester, lots of people called me duck. You're right, me duck. Oh, I'm yeah, learning yeah, that those yeah, are little yeah, things, yeah. Yeah, especially little of a certain age. However, yeah. in a professional setting, I don't expect to be called sweetheart. Okay. And that's not me being a thin-skinned snowflake because I know the context in which it was said, don't at me, people. Okay. <laughs> like, don't be up in my mentions <laughs> about this. Um, it, was a, it, it was, you know, being on one of those uh, SMTs, those senior management team oh, yeah. meetings or a goal command meeting. This was, this was in the thick of COVID. Um, and I was working with a local government um, uh, body then. And it was kind of like, how do you, what do you mean you don't know the great and wonderful Jimmy Savile? I'm like, well, why would I? He wasn't my childhood hero. Bill Cosby was. They both turned out to be disgraced. But that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. My point is, I got picked on in meetings for not understanding certain things. While when the roles are reversed, they would have just as little a clue as to what my cultural references were if they were the ones who had moved Absolutely. to Barbados. And to be honest, it was, you know, one of your questions was, how was it handled? It wasn't. I was in the minority. And mm. frankly, Ebony, I simply couldn't be bothered to try to educate people whose lives and perspectives were not going to change if I did. I also knew that to speak up, no matter how diplomatically I did it, I would be branded a troublemaker. Now, that's not a moniker that I have a difficulty with. I love making good trouble. That's the only way things get changed. But at the time, and I know that quite a few people listening will understand this, at the time, job security was precarious and on balance, Mm. the risk wasn't worth it. And I think that's a dilemma Black women in common space all the time. I'm not special in that regard. Yeah. The only anomaly I think is that culturally, I also don't fit into the neat box of what black women in Britain are supposed to look sound and, and, and be like. Mm. Um, so I chose to blog about it, write about it, speak to people like you and the preference overall, whether good is done on in, in my name or not is to do the most good where I can achieve the greatest outcome. Yeah. And as far as I was concerned, that tiny corner of local government in one of the richest, whitest boroughs in England was not going to be the place that I did the most good. Mm. And I know that you understand I that do. position of picking your battles. 
that's it and that's the thing that we have to deal with on a daily basis essentially is picking your battles and is it worth it and like you said you were in a situation where money is you know of primary concern and you're in a pandemic and it's like well do I kind of rock the boat now or you know worry about my bills and just trying to you know maneuver forward as best you can so I completely get that but mm-hmm. I mean it's going to be difficult for you obviously because like you said you're born in Barbados you've got different cultural background but so as black women in general over here I I mean speaking for myself I have a completely different background so then you know my white counterparts I remember going to work events and then speaking about things that I'm like I have no clue what they're talking about because that's not my culture you know so for them to be going about Jimmy Savile who's known pedo I'm like well we shouldn't be revered anyway I mean, let's get that started to start straightened out right away. But, um, yeah, and yeah, and it's just it's, it's like, to me, okay. it's just you know, what does it take to actually yeah, and and just turn around and say, oh, actually, this is what. But happened. even if I didn't understand, yeah. even if I didn't understand the reference, that was a golden moment in which you could have the, the person could have asked, oh, well, who who would have been your equivalent? Yeah, who would have been the person that you're people in your culture look up, up to we yeah. you know between you and us we would have talked about the mighty sparrow who is a legendary calypsonian yeah. we would have yeah. talked about yeah, spice absolutely. and company um again legendary in terms of the reggae scene in barbados yeah. um a band that was it looks like a benetown advert it was a perfect moment to make me feel welcome a bit more welcome and i never yeah. felt welcome yeah. on that instead day. you got ridiculed for not knowing who jimmy sabo was like i mean come on I mean, but that's just the ignorance. Let's be very clear, though. I don't cede power to people like that. I take that in my stride and I move on. Yeah. Noticing it and being affected by it are two different things. I notice a lot. Yeah. But I'm not necessarily affected by much of it. What I'm affected by, you'll know, there'll be a blog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get that. But I think that's important also to highlight because whilst that might not affect you, it could affect another uh, black female somewhere else where it does affect her because obviously we're different people. You know, we're going to... Be, uh, buttons are pressed by different people and you know it's absolutely different things that we will react to but absolutely. point being is that it's not okay and that was quite an interesting example that you used as well because you know it shouldn't have turned out that way for something so simple wasn't it you know interesting absolutely so i take it you i mean i will say that i know that you're quite vocal so <laughs> was it every time that you wish you spoke up about something or a time when you have spoken up about something and you definitely self-advocated I've been thinking about this question for a while. I genuinely can't come up with anything. I always wish I'd spoken up for myself. Always. Yeah. Because people mistake my op- being opinionated for being confrontational. And the two of them are not the same. No. I will speak up about what is right and wrong, no matter the cost, no matter my pride at all times, especially when I'm doing it on someone else's behalf. Right. Um, if you ask anyone that I care about incomes, I'm usually the one that says, where do they live? I will break their knees if you hurt my friend. <laughs> um, and I'm, and of course, I'm mostly joking, but that yeah. is just meant to demonstrate the, the conviction of my allyship because I take allyship very seriously. Yeah. However, I am the queen of the perfect comeback 20 minutes later okay. or 20 days later <laughs> or 20 weeks later. <laughs> um, and I often think to myself, well, what you could have said was, yeah, I've had but fundamentally, moments. I would prefer to fold into myself, collect my thoughts, mm-hmm. and put them on, on paper. Uh, okay. My pen is always going to be mightier than any sword or baseball bat that I would think. I, you know, I, we all think that we're like an extra from Fast and Furious. I'm not. <laughs> I'm I'm the geek behind the you know. Behind I'm the you. one on the screen fiddling with God's eye kind of thing. <laughs> um, and so, 
I simply choose. And the, and the other thing about that is there are, there have been times that I've thought to myself, you know, you really could have stuck it to them there. But on the other hand, it's, it's less about sticking up for myself and more in the latter part of my career of examining when someone has the, the, the intellectual and the psychological capacity to meet you as an equal in an intellectual exchange. Yeah, exactly. That doesn't mean I think everyone is stupid. No. It simply means that if you are coming at someone at a particular level and you want to have an exchange of ideas and get to the root of a matter, but they come at you like Cersei Lannister, I choose violence. There's really no point in coming to defend yourself because number one, there are more people who are committed to misunderstanding because of the prism through which they view you mm. than are people brave enough to admit that they could have been wrong. Wrong. Yeah. There are yeah. far more, especially in this very, very shouty black and white cancel culture, everything lives on Twitter kind of scenario that we live in now where no one seems to be able to be like, okay, you might not be right, but you're also not right. And the two things can live at the same time. Exactly. Going back to those references about um, now disgraced pop stars. I remember there was a Trevor Noah skit where he referenced how many times people said, but he wasn't like that with me when Bill Cosby was found to be um, a bit of a rapist. Mm. And Trevor Noah said, yes, he wasn't because he will relate to you differently because you fit differently in the power scale of the people he deals with. Mm. You're a rich white investor. Of course, he mm. doesn't deal with you the way he's going to deal with somebody who is a 25 year old starving artist who's desperate for one role to get her started. Mm. People treat you based on where they perceive the degree of power you have or influence you have in their lives lie. Mm. And so two things can be contradictory and true at the same time absolutely absolutely and these these little nuances get lost so if i'm not dealing with somebody who has the capacity by my observation or by proof to meet me in that kind of headspace where we can deconstruct an issue in a way that doesn't turn out to be a lick down drag out fight i won't bother and that's not me that's not me taking the so-called high road because there is something that we as black women need to unlearn about the narrative of being the bigger person. Mm. It is historically used to keep us quiet so that other people can get away with nonsense. And it plays on respectability politics. Yes. Respectability politics is why Jimmy Savile and Bill Cosby mm. were peeing into their colostomy bags before anyone dragged them into court. Mm. Respectability politics helps people get away with a lot of, stuff a lot of bs absolutely and so that's that's a whole other conversation that i'm willing to go into with you but the point i'm making is there's a lot of times that i wish i stuck up for myself more mm. but what serve what purpose is that going to serve if, if the person i'm sticking up for um is the security guard at my local tesco mm. what good is it going to do if it's a line manager that i only have to deal with once who has no black people in her immediate 
sub-immediate or wider circle of friends. Mm. I, that's the degree of psychological energy that I'm just not prepared to put out. Just put out if at the very least we can have a fair exchange of ideas. I'm not saying that I want you to agree with me. Mm. A fair exchange of yeah, ideas where at least I understand. It? Yeah, absolutely. Just that. Yeah. Just that. And if I see that you're already committed to, like this is one of the, one of the most heartbreaking um, occurrences in, in the journey to understanding true allyship had to do with realizing that someone who claimed to be an ally was really someone who was committed to their own mentality and wanted to debate my lived experience as a black woman rather than learn from it. Mm. And the degree of entitlement that I faced when dealing with that person said to me, you're not even close to being an ally the way you think you are. But this girl, Gail and Roger's first and only daughter, that's not where her energies are going to lie today. Mm. Life is going to teach you, boo-boo, and it ain't going to be me. Sorry, well, I'm talking enough. a bit of time to them. Sorry, but I, I told you to pull me back in. No, Ebony, like you got to rein me in. I like that. I like that. I want to let you go. I want to let you go. I was like, yeah, let her go. This is oh, good. Lord. Because actually, you're making some really good points there. And it's, in, it's important. And it's interesting because it's, it's obviously how you feel about this particular situation. Whereas I feel like, I get it. You don't, you don't always want to be battling every single person that you come across because that's not necessarily what you were here for. That's not your job to do that either. But in some cases, because I have a, I have two hats. My one hat, one like here. It's not my job to do that. I don't have to go around and educate you. You should be, you know, if you're interested in educate yourself. Otherwise, please keep your ignorance to yourself. It's kind of partly how I kind of move. And the other side is um, that yeah. part. Yeah, that part. <laughs> yeah. Then there's a part of me that's almost like, well, actually, uh, I will try and engage with those who I feel like can have the conversation. If you can't have the conversation, then please don't waste my time there's no point you know so it's a bit of that so I kind of get it I, I, I get it I feel like um advocating for others and being like you're saying being true ally is actually really not just saying it on paper it's actually living it in proof and actually can going I tell to you what my absolute life. definition of allyship is go for it speaking well of me when I'm not in the well, room absolutely yeah to me that is when you have done that and then you have done the follow-through yeah. By checking in with me away from algorithms, away from hashtags. When you will stick up for me when someone's going around with my, as we say in the Caribbean, with my name Stinka Road, which is your name yeah. nasty in the street. Yeah. <laughs> when you are the person who is doing that, it may not put a penny in my pocket, but yeah. we are in comms. We understand that reputational management doesn't have a price, yeah. especially when you lose it. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And for people of color like us, it's very, very important that rotation is actually on point. Uh, you know, we don't have the white privilege. You know, it's a bit different. So, no, I get it. I completely get where you're coming from in that. So I suppose on another thing I want to pick up with was about, you know, we spoke about self-advocating. We know that you, you're quite good to speak up for yourself and for others. We know that you've got you picked there. But I always like to touch on code switching. This is something that not everyone understands. But I feel like it's important that we kind of touch on it. So because I feel like, you know, code switching is big for us in our community. Now, do you feel like we can actually lead with our authentic voices in the workplace? Or do we have to continue to just code switch all the way? Let me just have a drink of water. Have a drink. One I've been waiting for. Have a drink. And for the people <laughs> out there who don't know what I mean by code switching, it's simply, it, watch Mo the Comedian. He does it all the time. It's so funny. I mean, um, you know, when we're around to our family and friends, you know, you might have just heard Katrina goes into her, her Bayesian twang, 
I might go into my Jamaican twang. So, you know, we'll talk slightly differently, be a bit more relaxed. Okay. Coming to workplace is different because you're usually being judged as a black person in the team or teams. And so we may switch up to be more professional in the workplace. Not to say that us talking normally isn't professional because I think it is. But again, it's about this kind of speaky spoky stuff that we feel like we have to do when we're in the workplace. What's your thoughts? Me ready. Me ready. <laughs> okay, so the question. <laughs> the question is, when it comes to code switching, uh, do we feel that we can lead with our authentic voice in the workplace? Now, the short answer is yes. Okay. I feel we can lead because if the metric of effective leadership is measurable results, mm-hmm. then the packaging it comes in, in my view, is less important. However, it is often that said packaging and the method of leadership that is measured in comms mm-hmm. as we talk about or brand. Mm-hmm. And that's where we run into trouble. Mm-hmm. Personally, I struggle with being authentic, not because I have a problem with being authentic, but because I've learned the hard way that my truth is lost in being seen as a gimmick or being a mildly amusing dancing caricature not taken seriously at all. So I'm regularly caught in that no man's land between saying Gail and Roger first child who don't watch your name Stinker Road (laughs) and knowing that that's my truth and knowing that's me being authentically me Mm -hmm. and knowing that Jim Bob from IT is going to be like, is that how you talk with your family? What did you say? Mm, yeah. And then by the time that little joke has made the rounds on the team call, the policy and the comms plan that I just presented is completely lost because I'm just, and I hope I can say this, I'm just another smiling, dancing, happy Negro. Mm, mm, I get you. So to me, number one, Leading in comms is less important to me than being effective in comms. I know there are people who have some very, very strict metrics of what their career trajectory should look like. And I applaud and support that both in public and in private. However, and that's something that we talked about before we even got on this call, is the fact that I'm not sure that comms is my destination, but it has been a valuable part of my professional journey. So leading is less important to me than being authentic and just getting the work done. Right. But to me, it's broader than that. Being authentic is, is so much more than just what you call a twang, a dialect, um, a nation language, what I, I call it heart speak. Um, it's, it's, it's being told that I really ought to think about bringing sandwiches to work because nobody can cope with the smell of my moi moi, which is a fish dish from Nigeria mm. that I really enjoy. Yeah. Um, it is constantly being invited to away days that revolve around binge drinking yeah um it's not that we don't love rum girl you know you love some we apple. like rum i, I don't love my mouth gay okay. hello right. no two ways like about my ray that. nephew okay ray nephew for me is let's go but again okay okay, okay. you're allowed to have that <laughs> but the point is for caribbean people drinking is an ingredient in a larger social experience yes a lot of my experience here and i'm not making generalizations but my experience has been that drinking is the goal. Yeah, being what people that, call that is the, is the yeah. goal. Yeah, yeah, completely. 
Whereas, you know, it's, it's not our culture. It's not necessarily our culture like that. So this whole pub culture is not necessarily our culture. I mean, I do have, like, my granddad used to go to the pub here and there, have a Guinness or whatever, but that wasn't necessarily our culture, as you say. So drinking is part of, like, you know, we've got a celebration and that's just part of, you know, you know, the food, drink, great. But that's not the crux of it. Like, where it feels like for here, the drink culture is huge over in the UK. Massive. And to me, like, you've got, if you don't go along sometimes, you could be etched out the team. You know, things like that can happen too, which I oh, feel yeah. like you know people are trying to be a bit more cognizant of but it happens a lot of the time if you're not in the pub and you're not out for the after drinks then you might miss something you might not be seen as you know as a a viable option because you're not as likable to this person well i have to throw in a proviso there and say that as i told you the first 15 years of my career was in mainstream journalism um broadcast and latterly print but coming on to the end of moving back here, I was a freelancer and I have been a, a career freelancer most of my life. So I have had very few blocks of time where I have to contend with office culture. Right. And where I have had to, I've been in Barbados where even if I didn't like the office, the culture was ours. Right. So I have never personally faced the feeling that if I am not down the pub with the lads that I'm missing out on something that has a, has any bearing on my professional advancement. I, I rarely ever have that. Mm. Um, and I think, and again, this is something that you I'm sure can appreciate when you get to a point where you're comfortable in your skin, you crave acceptance of that kind of atmosphere less and less. Mm. Yeah. So the current team that I sit in, I'm happy to sit down and have a drink with this lot. I like them. Yeah. And I think that we would get on well, on an afternoon at an away day at Woburn Abbey feeding the deer. Mm-hmm. But if I miss it, it doesn't mean that I feel like I'm missing out right. on something right. that could be of help to me at work. Yeah. And I think a lot of our struggles have to do with coming, coming to a place of peace with that which you can't change. Yeah. And as I said earlier, there's, I I try to go where my work will do the most good and trying to change the mind of a 65 year old who says, who thinks it's okay in the Mm. process of onboarding me to say, oh, you're just a perfect hire. All that would be, all that would help now is if you were also gay because you're black and you're a woman. Oh, lovely. Hmm. Full check. Checking boxes. Just checking boxes over here we are, aren't we? But he said it. He said it. That's the point. Yeah. Yeah. And and again, you're always in that no man's land between, do I really take the energy to drag this old man backwards by his hair all (laughs) over Rihanna's internet today? Or do I say, yes, Jim, and go on about my business and eat some curry and talk to my brother who will make me laugh about something that happened in the garden or in the orchard in Barbados where he is. It's always that. that And one of the things we haven't really, yeah. And one of the things we haven't really touched on, which I'm sure you will, sorry, I'm being the interviewer here, which is terrible, but (laughs) it's it's, it's where I'm used to. Um, The psychological toll of being perpetually on alert. Alert. Yeah, that's speak to it. Go for it. Okay. Well, I'm trying to let you ask your question. Well, you kind of done it. So I'm not going to ask you. Just just put it there. So I'm like, 
speak to that speak to it because you're already going there the psychological impact go for it because yeah. I feel like that's, this is what people don't always get into this is why I think these talks I'm doing are going to be interesting because they're going to go all different directions depending on who you speak to but with you I think the psychological part let's, let's, let's unpick that a little bit because that's what they don't see people don't see that we rock up to work and we have to sort of almost prep yourself to, to go into the workplace and not everybody sees and recognises that for everybody else it could be get up you have a cornflakes go to the gym go to work for, for some people of colour it's a case of actually we've got to put on our suit of armour to go to work firstly to take on the little digs that you might get from someone in the workplace to try and you know get a matrix on trying to you know just take that off the shoulder and let that go off and let that go off so you know it's very different and again like I say nuance depends on on your culture and your background I always find it interesting because obviously you know you're from a Bayesian background which most of the people that I know from Barbados are very kind of open and encouraged to speak up you've got others cultures where they're not as encouraged to speak up as much so maybe don't know how to kind of deal with this kind of feeling when going to the workplace so I feel like for you whilst it's going to be a lot still mentally I feel like for you you also know how to suit up and say all right well I'm not taking no trash today um yes and no um remember i said that just because i know how to stick up for myself doesn't mean i enjoy confrontation and aggression um my weapon is my pen always will be yes i can be quite caustic but um i I think i'm i wield both the the pen and the tongue much more confidently when i know the lay of the land right and a lot of times when i would react in a way that is entirely appropriate to whatever slight myself or a colleague would have faced you don't know the lay of the land um and it like i can't tell you the number of times i've been have been in conversation with people who have said all the right things and i have all but booked that slot out as i have a speaking engagement next october only to hear that position has been filled and i'm like explanation no okay Um, But that's, again, not special to me. Psychologically, though, I am often asked by people who are true allies, why don't you fight it? Whether it is somebody speaking to me any old kind of way, whether it is creating a 65-page comms plan for the next year for a local government authority only to be told we're not renewing your contract, but we'll take that piece of intellectual property. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And and put it on a shelf. Um, And I remember in the, in the height of the post George Floyd murder, when people like you and me were suddenly the, um, the cause du jour, everyone wanted to talk to a black comms person, which I thought was kind of funny because not many of them are calling today. But you're not built for that beef. We'll speak on that later. Yeah. Um, the reality is people kept asking, why don't you fight it? Why don't you say this? We're so sorry for what you're dealing with. I'm like, you know what? I'm tired. I'm just tired. I'm tired because I feel like I have a responsibility to fight on behalf of people that I don't know. Mm. Because in case y'all have forgotten, everybody in Barbados basically looks like me. I've never had what I look like be something I have to think about in a professional sense, except for you'll work on camera, try not to eat that many cakes on a weekend. That's it. (laughs) So 
I'm now speaking on behalf of people whose cultural background having to deal with school teachers who held them back in school because they didn't understand the difference between a tap and a faucet. This is not an anecdote. This was, um, this was spoken about in the period of time where Black immigrant children were seen as educationally subnormal. Mm. Even the word makes me cringe. Yeah. So I'm speaking on behalf of people who, who have it deep, who, mm. who have it deep in a way that I don't. I'm being asked to speak on things that I don't feel the authority to. I keep telling people I'm not, I'm not a diversity expert. I'm a Katrina expert. I'm an mm. expert on my lived experiences. Mm. That's it. Um, and the degree to which I am perpetually now on alert. Once you see certain things and you watch certain scenarios play out, you can't unsee them. And it's, it creates a pall over what for me was a generally joyful, bubbly, pink hibiscus, shortbread and snow cones with coconut sauce kind of existence. Because now you just can't unsee it. You mm. just can't unhear it. So you go to a restaurant and someone brings your white subordinate the bill. Ugh. And it wasn't that great a meal in the first place. Yeah. And you think to yourself, oh, I've seen it. I know it's rooted in racism, but we're about to go have a coffee and a really nice long walk by the canals. Is tonight the night that I create a scene in this restaurant? Mm. You go yeah. to a new pub where the service is terrible, <laughs> yeah. but you're the darkest skinned of all the light skinned black people at the table. And you're the one who says, I'm not paying five pounds for this many squid. And the excuse is, well, we've only just started. We're just in training. And I'm like, so I know that you offered that table a refund. What about my table? Exactly. You can't unsee it. See it. Yes. When, when you have someone say to you, oh, it must be really cute for you to have a little party on the 30th of November every year, now that you've been away from the British monarch for however years. This was before we became a republic. I'm like, no, we're a sovereign country and we punch above our weight at the UN. So yes. no, we don't have a little party wearing coconut shelves. You can't unhear it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's it's. It does get tiring. That's your point, isn't it? That's my point. That's my point. It's like after one thing after the next, after next, after next, and it's like, well, that's why we spoke about, you know, when is the right time to fight the right battle, or you know, picking a battles because it does get like that. It gets tiresome every time I see something that has to do with racist abuse or. Um, whether it be in the workplace, you know, we saw that headline every day about the half of the black women who are not even getting paid decently. You know, we, there's, there's so much in there and in society as a whole, it, it is tiresome. And for you and for variety, you do get people who will say, oh, why don't you speak about this? And I know, obviously, I work for myself, so it's a bit different. When in the workplace, I would speak up about certain things. But again, it depends on whose ears it's falling on. And, and again, how much... Bingo. You know, Yes, whose ears? I mean, who's who's being receptive? It has to do with who is advocating on your behalf yeah. as well. It, it has yeah. to do with what tables you're sitting at. Yeah. It has to do with when you kick it up, when you when you refer it up. Are you referring it to an ally, or are you referring it to someone who perpetuates the status quo? Exactly. It, it, people do not understand the degree to which you may look like you've sat at your desk all day and typed, but in here, that mm. negotiation never stops. Never stops. That negotiation never stops. It's so true. Even when we go You're shopping, constantly we're constantly yes. aware. Aware, aware, aware. You know, exactly. I walk into a store and I get followed around. I know it's like my white car part walks in the store, doesn't get followed around. But actually, he's the one doing the stealing. 
but that's fine, you know, because I'm not, I, I fit the black stereotypes. So you can follow me around, even though I'm probably only more than you as a, the security guard. But that's fine, you know, just follow the black person because they must be a thief, you know. So it's, it's things like that. I get it. It's the nuances of the things that we deal with on a daily basis that can be so tiring. And it's like, you know what? We didn't come here to fight all these battles. We just want to live our life, you know. You know, we're working calm. And the one thing I want to point out, you know. Absolutely. And the only thing I want to add to this portion of the conversation, it has to do with trying to be the person who doesn't scare potential allies away. Mm. There are many of us in the community of Black comms professionals who quite rightly have a scorched earth policy on handling people who speak a certain sort of way to us. Mm. And like I said, quite rightly. Mm. But you also have to be careful that when you are trying to bring people along with you, you don't cut off your nose to spoil your features. Exactly. I had a teachable moment in that scenario a little while ago when I was invigilating um, a sort of exam. Mm -hmm. And one of the criticisms of an applicant in this exam was that what they were blaming for their lack of advancement in the industry was very easy to do. And I paused and I swallowed, had somebody to drink. I said, it's easy because the activity that they're claiming that they don't have access to is designed for people who tick your box. What I wanted to say, Ebony, was you have no idea what this woman's lived experience is. This how is are you like, telling her how easy it is? Yeah. But he was supposed to be part of the change we wanted to see in the industry. So in that moment, I had a choice. Yeah. Hand him a new backside, which is yeah. what he would have deserved because he was speaking from a place of lily white wealthy male privilege. Absolutely. Yeah. Or use it as a teachable moment. Yeah. I am genuinely proud to say that in that moment, the person took the crit critique on board. But, but to me, that is how close we are as an industry to not really making a whole lot of progress because it's, a, it's, it's quite cosmetic. Yes, it This is. person was supposed to be part of a process that broke up the degree to which our industry caters to a particular dynamic. Mm -hmm. But within the process of him working towards that goal, yeah. he brought his white privilege to the to table the by that's saying that's this, egg, this, egg, this thing that this person says they can't do is very it's, easy if only easy they would do. try. I mean, come on now, that alone, you know, but again, it's because he's oh. in his own cocoon. He doesn't see it until you have to come and say, well, actually, this is a glaring issue here. You're not seeing it with, a, you know, without your privilege hat on. It's hard. And this, this is one of the things that I find we have fighting against because you've got people who are trying to push through new initiatives but to me, a lot of it is just initiatives. It just sounds good. Um, and then when you get to the crux of it, you're like, well, what really is going on there and how nuanced is it and how aware are you? And, and that, in fact, how diverse is even your team that are putting it together? You know, and how much input do they have? Do they have a real voice in there or they just meant to sit there and look pretty? Because, you know, you've got just like the whole, so, sorry to go off a little bit, but you know, the H&M um, T-shirt situation with a little kid. Yeah. Yes. Remember this one massive, massive diff, um, deal. But um, I can't remember who I was watching. Someone I was watching on a, on a podcast. He was saying, and I thought the same thing. 
you could have a black person who could have been at that table, but if they were not empowered to, to share their voice, they might not have shared their voice. That would be, we think it's a wrong Boom. thing to do. And I think this is what that people part. don't get, get, don't get. You can add a person of color to your, your team, but how empowered are they to be able to use their authentic voice and how receptive are you to that? Or will you just do it as a, oh, well, she's nice to have, she checks the box because she makes the, the team look diverse. But any idea that she's got, maybe not because, you know, it doesn't, sit well in my brain because I've come from a white privilege and this doesn't make sense to me. You know? So it's, it's, it's all very interesting. One of the more key points there. Empowerment yeah. is key. The yeah. window dressing means less and less. Yeah. Yeah. And that has me say that because this leads us into the, we've kind of touched on allyship and I know you've mentioned what you what you'd like to see as an allyship and speaking about you when you're not in the room, which is important. But as we're talking about that, well, let's look at it from an employer perspective, you know, what is it that we should be looking for from our employers as people of colour? Because I feel like whenever <laughs> I go for it, whenever I go for interviews, right, when I used to go for interviews, I always, always had on the hat of, I'm also interviewing that employer. Do I want to work for you? As well as you're looking at, do you want me to work for you? I'm looking at you like, do I want to work with your team and with you? So I always had very uh, good questions. People were always like thrown by my questions because I would, I would ask very some serious, serious questions. And, um, but I think that's important because I'm looking at it like, well, you can interview me, but I'm interviewing you. And actually, there's been places that I've been to and I've been like, they want to hire me, but I don't want to work there because I don't see myself fitting there. I can see the culture isn't conducive to being cohesive. So I feel like there's things like that that we should be looking for for our employers. So I want to get your take on that. You're right. We are, in, we are interviewing our prospective employers as much as they are interviewing us. But I think we need to make that more obvious. Mm. because if you approach it in a way that is deemed too aggressive and we don't have to work very hard to be called aggressive as black women in comms mm. um the threshold for being called aggressive or troublesome is very very low um what we are looking for is someone who is prepared to be interrogated and i don't mean in the waterboarding isis kind of way Definitely. um yeah. i mean Someone who is prepared to interrogate their position as an employer. Someone who is prepared to psychologically strip naked and be like, okay, would this person be comfortable here? Yeah. So to me, that's what I'm looking for if I choose to go full-time. Okay. What I'm also looking for, however, is someone who knows how to get the best out of people. I know that sounds very 1980s, but the reality is, despite these quotas and despite the black squares and despite this period of racial awakening that the world is going through, you are unlikely to walk into an office and find the majority of the employees that look like my family. My family looks like a variety pack of Nestle chocolate, but not everyone's going to look like that. It's, it's yeah. highly unlikely. And I know people as employers and hiring managers who are beating their heads against the wall, doing everything they can to break up the biases, to have their board of directors look less and less like what one of our colleagues once called a pint of Guinness. You know, mm -hmm. they're trying really yeah. hard yeah. and they're doing all the things that you and I will talk about in these forums, but it's not quite happening. Mm. So I think it's more important that the culture of the organization speaks to tapping into the difference that makes us stronger yes. rather than walking into an interview panel and seeing um a muslim woman wearing a hijab a chinese man a jewish man a white man and a black woman like that's just not gonna happen this is not the cosby show mm. 
it's more important to me that even if there's four white women, that one is at least from a lower class background, one of them is perhaps middle class, one of them is maybe married to a black man, and that their mentality says, I am not the authority on this. I give way to Ebony, who knows better about Ray Nephew than I ever will. Hmm. It's more important to me that there's the willingness to, to eke out our differences and make them our strengths yeah. than it is, look at this, because you and I both know, and you can quote me on this one, just because they're your skin folk don't mean they're your kin folk. Absolutely. That has been one of the hardest things for me to learn Absolutely. in this industry. One Absolutely. of the hardest things for me to learn. Absolutely. I so from, as, from an employer, mm-hmm. so as an employer, I accept that it's likely you're going to be a white man. Yeah. But be the white man who says, I want a sense check on this poster that I've just approved because I'm not sure how it's going to test with 25-year-old black women from Brixton. Mm. And then you ask me. Mm. I am more interested in that than in whether or not you have a good-looking poster for your board of directors. Right. So that's interesting. That's man, my Because I feel like that, again, is down to preference. Because I know plenty of others who are saying, well, no, don't ask me just because I'm the black girl in the room because I don't want to be your you know your checkbox person so again it just depends isn't it it's really interesting because i, I know people who are like it absolutely i'm depends. going into my job i want to do my job but i don't want to be like oh because i'm a black person ask me this you've got others who are like you know well actually i'm a black person here and i don't mind being the barometer for that so again it also makes it harder essentially for employers but i feel like employers you have to just understand that you hire people based on your skills and the skills that they have and make sure that you are like you say getting the best out of them but I feel like for employers, I feel like it's important that they do have some form of dialogue so that they understand that if they have got a person of colour on their team, doesn't mean that they want to be the person that gets hit for everything, you know, diversity related. That person might just want to come in and do their job and not be hit up for everything that's diversity. Oh, absolutely. So again, it's about understanding that as well. I feel like that's what can happen to us a lot. You know, I, you know, you get thrown into the equality team because you're a black person, but you might not have any interest in that whatsoever. So again, I feel like, like you said, it's and about I, think, I don't blame them and nurturing it and um, understanding. And I don't envy anyone who is pulling together a team right now. I really yeah. don't, because if you really care about pulling together a team and you're not just using people's skills as a revolving door to get something done and, you know, jump on your yacht to wherever you're going. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. I acknowledge that it's difficult. What yeah. I do not accept is that it's impossible. No, definitely not. Definitely not. I, I do not is- expect I don't expect you to have someone who is aspergic, over 60, deaf, and black on your team. Because it just doesn't work out that way. What I do expect is that your induction loops work in the event that there's one deaf person that has to deal with your office. Mm. What I do expect is that even if the black person loves more Arctic monkeys than they do Ray and Nephew, that you've at least made the effort to ask. And if they choose not to, then you tap into the rest of your cultural lexicon to figure it out. That's all I care about. Yeah. It's about being fair. I'm not going to tell you. I know nothing. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know anything about the Brixton riots. Why would I? I read about them. I didn't live here at the time. Yeah. I wasn't here. I can tell you about, I can, I can tell you about the, the riots in, um, Dudas Cox constituency when, one of the dons was about to have the whole of Trelawney shot up in Jamaica. I can mm. tell you about that mm. because it happened on my watch. I covered right. that as a journalist in, in, you know, when I was at BBC, the yeah. point I'm making is at the very least, try to understand where your team is coming from. Yeah. Do not make assumptions 
That's key. Eke out their differences and make yeah. them work for you. That's key. That is key. And I think and this, and, and is mean, massive. We're, we're allowed not to want to talk about everything that has to do with our ethnicity. Exactly. Sometimes exactly. I just want to be a person that likes red lipstick. That's exactly. Sometimes I just want to be that guy. Exactly. <laughs> you know? No, I get it. I get it. I think that's important. This is why it's important we're having these sort of conversations because people get to understand that we're not, you know, we don't just fall into a box, you know, like I said, we're not monolithic. It's not like that. So you've got to really be thinking about that, but I'm going to move it on now. Cause I know we've been thinking about this for a little while. So what about what makes a good work environment for you? Like you said, somewhere where people might not make assumptions where you can feel like they're trying to get the best out of you as a team, right. Rather than trying to make you fit into a box that doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, what, what chimes with me in the moment is, that the value I add to the team is dependent almost entirely on my output. And that's important because the degree of digital presenteeism that was forced on me in a previous role did not foster anything other than resentment Resentment. and an unnecessary degree of clock watching. Yeah. Whereas I'm currently on my lunch hour from my current employer. And the only thing she had to say to me was good luck and tell me how it went. Right. Because I stayed up until 11 o'clock last night doing a task that was mission critical today. Right. She doesn't care. That's not necessarily going to work for everyone. Some people do need to be reined in. Mm. Some people need structure. I get that. I can only speak for me. What's important for me is that I'm allowed to be creative. I'm allowed to let my creative impulses run their course without being told this is the way we've always done it. Yeah. What's important to me is that even if you acknowledge that you are as white as driven snow and your idea of a fun weekend out is fish and chips by the seaside in Cornwall, that we can laugh about the fact that fish in Barbados and fish in Cornwall are prepared differently and we can talk about it. Yeah. Not every conversation has to be cultural exchange, but at least make it so that I don't feel like a pot of jerk chicken at high tea at high grove <laughs> castle or wherever it is um yes that's a good analogy notice when i want yeah. well it is like it's i often like i'm working a lot of predominantly white spaces and i'm just like i am just one big bo- bo- pot of oxtail stew <laughs> at high tea at chatsworth castle i mean yeah. Yeah, i get it i get it that is so funny that is so funny all right well, i'm gonna ask you before you go yeah anyway. and what what makes it important <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It no, just it funny. just makes it, it e- even if I'm even if I'm different, even if I'm different, don't make it something that makes me feel less than. No, it's in the same way that my yeah, one of my best friends is is, is very severely aspergic, and we never talk about it as if it is their disability. It is mm. their superpower, and yeah, I've absolutely. made it my business to find out how it manifests itself as a superpower oh, so yeah katrina's not really good with focus but she's the most creative person on the team oh, so give her five brilliant. minutes to run around the block and get the sparks flying Blimey. she'll come back to you with a comms plan that you couldn't have thought about just sipping on some tea and having a cucumber sandwich Absolutely. to me just find the ways that i am uh, find the ways that i am at my best yes get me out get that bit out of me out of and you. i feel more indebted to line managers, hiring managers, and bosses in general who have met me where I am at mm. and let me flourish because yeah. it creates a degree of loyalty. I want to do well for of my course. current boss because yeah. she leaves me alone. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> very well. Who wants to be micromanaged? Absolutely, completely. 
So I'm moving into and like I think the, the broader, side. I think the broader conversation. Yeah. I think the broader conversation here has to do with how quickly people are accepting that measurement is the best measurement for productivity, not presenteeism, not mm. ticking boxes. I think it's a, the broader conversation here is about how quickly have your has your workplace and your processes adapted to understanding that you have to make an incredibly compelling case to get people out of their homes and back into offices, unless you're talking about audience uh, customer facing roles well, or yeah. roles that require physical interaction. Yeah. So that, that's a broader conversation there. Yeah. But I promise you my next contract, you have to be, you need to be promising a whole lot of rum and passage paid home every year or something on that level. Absolutely. For me to get dressed and spend two hours on a train to go somewhere, to, go to do somewhere. something I could do in the From office. home. Exactly. No, you know, but that's, like, that's, that's the conversation that's about hybrid work. Absolutely. Is, you know, that's a different conversation. But entirely. Yeah, I want to pick up before we kind of wrap up on your proudest moments because it is about giving you your flowers. So tell us about some of your proudest moments oh, Lord. in work or, or a career highlight, if you will. Uh, hmm. Your blog, I'm sure you're proud of your blog. It's very insightful. You broke up a little bit over that one. Um, oh, proudest moments. So they have, they, they tend to be around the moments where I had to think quickly on my feet and adapt to something. Um, it should be not, it shouldn't be a huge surprise that these proudest moments didn't occur on UK soil. Again, a conversation for another time. Yeah. Um, but there was, um, I was the comms PR person for an international bank that sponsored one of Barbados's biggest cultural festivals. And on the day that the festival wound down, um, it's called crop over because it signifies the end of the, you know, crop over. It signifies the end of the sugarcane crop. Um, And the day that it culminates is called Kadumant Day. Um, So at the end of Kadumant Day, which is basically um, eight hours of costume revelers, lots of drinks, um, getting to the final point of dissembling, disassembling, um, there was a shooting and um, someone was injured. Someone was severely injured. And it happened 15 minutes before the official end of the festival, which meant it was under the remit of the title sponsor. Um, naturally, I was told, next some coffee and get into the office because I was very much having a good Kaduma day myself. Yeah. Um, I was in charge of creating the holding statement and managing the, the press fallout of that. Mm. Um, and quite a few of the suggestions for the holding statement had to do with condemning violence and all of that. I'm like, mm, that's typical. And our people aren't going to, they're not going to fall for that. So my suggestion was to create, um, to pledge uh, support and funding for the police officers who went above and beyond to find the people who were responsible. It had to do with gang, gang violence um, um, and to support them by suggesting that people who knew things came forward. And I think that pivot in the, the messaging changed it. I don't want to take this kind of credit, but I think it did change the mood of the public yeah. where the reaction to the shooting was concerned, turning it away from condemn- condemnation and towards support for the police force yeah. and support for the people who want. And the, the, the other thing was 
it's a very heavily covered festival. We had 67 to, to, 67 to 80 uh, international members of the press there from China all the way back down. It was a bad day for brand Barbados mm. and more so for brand the bank that I worked for. Right. But I think that that pivot, it changed the conversation around the fallout for the day. Mm. And inevitably, many of the holding statements that had to do with finding the perpetrators, condemning all that, we never needed to use them. The only one we ended up using was the one that we talked about supporting the police in their yeah. en endeavors. That felt good because That's it was the coming together of quite a few factors. It was mm -hmm. having a maverick for a boss that knew I was coming to work dressed in shorts and slippers and he didn't care. Yeah. It had to do with having a PR manager who trusted my judgment and said, this one's yours, Katrina. It had to do with personally knowing the CEO of the bank and knowing that if I didn't get it right, I was going to run into him at barbecue the following weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing that that would have been very uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is Barbados. I mean, it's yeah. very unlikely you're going to do a bit of a job in the north of the island and then never see the person again. It just yeah. doesn't work that way. So yeah. the interconnectedness of journalism and comms in the Caribbean makes the pressure to deliver comms deliverables much, much steeper. Mm. So yeah, that was that was a, a proud uh, moment. Sounds um, like a good moment, a very good one. Absolutely. And to work on that yeah, festival. Yeah. Hello. I'm like, I need to go over. We need to go over to Barbados. I want to go there for that festival. I mean, I know people. Done. I can put you in touch. What can I tell you? <laughs> yeah. I know you know people. Absolutely. Great stuff. Oh, well, that's good. That's good. And so what are your, um, I'm getting to my wrapping up side of things now, right? So I suppose I was going to ask you more around um, what your thoughts are on the industry and how you see it kind of evolving over the next couple of years. Um, hmm. before we started recording, I reminded you that mea culpa, I am having a bit of an evolutionary period when it comes to understanding where comms fits in my career journey. Mm. And, um, for reasons that we have discussed and many that we have not, I am falling quite gradually out of love with comms. comms yes. It doesn't mean that as an industry, there is it's, it's, with, it's beyond hope, quite the opposite. I'm very excited about the degree of passion I see in colleagues, former colleagues, friends who've not, you know, colleagues who've become friends. Mm. Um, this has to do with my personal journey. Personal so my journey. personal view is that if you are in comms because you think it is something that is slightly more secure and more lucrative, I thought that, and it only lasted a couple of years. Hmm. I am prepared to continue to be poor, to be a writer and a storyteller. Hmm. That's where my metier is. That's where my, that's what gives, that's what makes me swing my feet off the bed of a morning. Right. Um, comms is a good industry to help you figure yourself out. But if you haven't, it's not a good industry for, to stay in. Yeah, um, in terms of what is happening, I think we have to be careful as an industry of drinking our own Kool-Aid. And I see a lot of that. I see people uh, who want to do good but are still not sure how to accomplish it, but are not going beyond the typical sources of information for how. Mm. Something I've said on more than one occasion is if there's a block in your sink, you have to go to the UBEN to find out where it is. And mm -hmm. people keep talking about the lack of the supply chain and there's, a, there's no bottleneck. Go to the source. Where do you start only interviewing 26 year old white students for comms jobs. Mm. When you realize that that's all that's coming through your go further back, mm -hmm. go to college, go to high school, go further back, go yeah. to the source of the bottleneck. Yeah. 
Um, and I think in the same way that I've heard people say things like, well, it can't be that hard. All you have to do is jump on Twitter and there is your comms, um, there is your comms uh, network. I'm like, mm, really? And, you know, we have to do different to get different. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of that has to do with facing up to our own biases. Like I said, just because they're your skin folk doesn't mean that you're kin folk. Um, absolutely. I, I've had that conversation with someone I, today. Actually. I feel. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and even within groups that are supposed to be allies, there are biases. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. And so the state of the industry continues to be, to me, resting on the shoulders of a very narrow few who are actually doing something measurable mm. where quite a few people continue to do that which looks good yes because we're good at that like that's what we do we are we, we are, are, we, are the we spit shine and yeah absolutely you know so doing that. I said, it's been I a talking shop of diversity for a, a very long time now so yeah it is you're quite right i completely get you on that but it doesn't mean I don't have hope. No. I have an immense degree of hope and optimism for okay. the industry going forward because without, with the greatest respect, we've lost the ones who are in uni now. Mm. We, let's, let's not bother trying to convert them. They're going to go where they're going to go. Mm. We need to get into colleges. We need to yeah. get into high schools. We need to get into, we need to f- help people figure out why they want to do what we do because we can barely explain what it is we do. A friend of mine, son says, daddy works on the Twitter and the child is 13. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, like I think in order for us to start selling ourselves and creating a more evolved and diverse industry, we have to look ourselves in the mirror, have Mm. interrogate our own positions and figure out what story we're going to tell about ourselves. Mm. Then we can start selling it because if, I mean, I really want to make sure that I include this point and please don't edit it out. We need to have a conversation with ourselves as an industry when the hashtag slap heard around the world was used as a reminder in an email sent out to get someone to vote for a PR award. Someone who calls themselves a leader in the industry used the Will Smith, Chris Rock slap. They reproduced the video. They created a narrative around the event all for cheap clicks to get some get to get people to vote for a particular award ceremony. Wow. Three of us that I know of highlighted it over there on the Twitter sphere. One yeah. of us is black. Three of three of us were white. No one's come back to me. I've since unfollowed that account and I'm no longer subscribing to that yeah. organization. Yeah, fair enough. But if that happened within living memory, yeah. don't ask me about the future of the industry when that's the what going to look like, absolutely. So what would you what would your advice be to young people of color who are considering entering the industry then? Think long and hard about the kind of comms person you want to be, but before you do that, make sure you're clear on what a comms professional does. Because I feel like a lot of what we do is wrapped up in the cult of personality. Mm. So kind of like if you see a person on LinkedIn or on Twitter talk enough about crisis comms, then it gets stuck in our head that they're crisis communicators. But what are their stripes? If you see someone talk about ESG enough, what are the... Okay, so yeah, there's someone who talks about environmental sustainability and governance. 
Where are their stripes? What is the proof? How do we get into that? So I think it's one of those industries that can be deeply rewarding if you're truly passionate about it. And I know and support many comms people who, who fit that bill. But if you're 17 and trying to figure out what you're doing coming out of college, I think comms is a hard sell. And unless you've got an Auntie Ebony or an Uncle Darren or an Auntie Sally. (laughs) Exactly. It's interesting that uh, you're going like to end up being one of those people who says my uncle works on the Twitter, but I don't really know what he know does. What he does, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I feel like it's, things are changing depending on where you are, but yeah, I get what you mean. I still think that there's things to be done. And I also shouldn't be course. speaking on behalf of an industry that I'm kind of working my way out of. No, but it's Not interesting to leave you're, it you're entirely. because you like journalism, you like writing, but you still got a foothold in it. It's still communications, so. Yeah, yeah, but like I said, I I wouldn't want to speak on behalf of a whole industry, but I would want to say that having slipped into it, worked through it, and then slipping slightly out of it, those are my feelings on it. But we appreciate. Yeah, I wouldn't want to speak on behalf of the whole. So, Katrina, how would you say you manage your mindset? So, this is really key. So, I feel like you know whether you're an independent person, freelance, or employed, mindset is extremely extremely important so managing things like self-limiting beliefs and the internal mind war what tips do you have for us be 100% sure what you know and be 150% sure what you don't know it saves a lot of stress in the long run when you can speak confidently about what is your what I call my metier, where, where that's your sweet spot. Okay. Know it, know it tall, know it backwards, because the confidence that that knowledge brings you will slide you over the bumps where you're not particularly clear on the knowledge, but also know what you don't know. As a comms person, I'm very good at the words. Do not ask me about measurement. I know how to do it, but it's not my thing. It's not my jam. And I know that. So I can declare that nice and early. Know what you know, know what you don't know. And for God's sake, black women, stop thinking that you're good so someone's going to come find you. They're not. Nobody's coming to rescue you, boo-boo. Yeah. Create your podcast. Create your blog. Yeah. Be a walking embodiment of your brand every step of the way. Silly things. I never leave the house without some sort of um, head covering when my edges need doing. Mm. Why? Because every time I've been on a podcast like this, I know that it's... I don't know where it's going to go. And... I don't leave the house without gloves in the winter. That's not yeah. even so much of a brand thing. It's just, I know that get things get cold and my gloves always match my scarf. Yeah. yeah I know yeah. that red yeah. is the power color that I use for podcasts. So this is my podcast jumper. This is my podcast lipstick. Yeah. Be aware of your image every step of the way. I'm, I don't mean that you have to look like Stefan Don. It has nothing to do with that. If your image is, is natural hair and smelling like avocado oil, do you boo do you that's fine but be aware of your image because trust me somebody else is yeah absolutely absolutely i think that's 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 good and what about self-limiting beliefs though that's the bit so what do you do for yourself to make sure that you know you're getting up in the morning to go and be a freelancer or you're forging ahead with whatever you're doing despite challenges because as black women we are facing challenges on a daily basis 
this one was harder because it's it's a rabbit hole that if you're not careful, you can end up down the bottom of it. When the the mental dementors come, and they do, I remind myself that whether I want to believe it or not, the only reason why people try to subjugate you is because you threaten them. Whether it is your light, your life, your journey, your talent. And if you can just remember that by not believing in yourself, you're helping them to perpetuate that narrative. If you can just remember that even if, and this is, this, you know, this is related to mental health, which is a whole other conversation, but people who suffer with clinical depression with all, will often tell you that it's a lot of work just to get up and take a shower. So keep the baby wipes by your bed. <laughs> you don't have to go for the full shower. Do enough so that your face can take some moisturizer. And I believe that professionally, we need to do the same thing. Mm. I'm not saying that you have to write a full blog. I have had 40 blogs sitting in my head since George Floyd was murdered. I've only written three of them, mm. but they're there. What do I do? I write Twitter threads. It's the intellectual version of the baby wipe rather than a full shower. Going straight into it, absolutely. Do enough to keep it ticking along. Yeah. While you're in that headspace that says, I can't, I'm not good enough. Mm. And only give yourself a period of time to wallow. Mm. I give myself three days out of every six months okay. for me to feel like life is terrible. I crawl into the bottom of a bag of what's it. I ring my mom and I cry. Yeah. When that's done, the what's it are gone. My mother doesn't hear me for three weeks and I'm back on kale smoothies as far as I'm able. Back to try and keep it but, up. But designate the time because the world won't give it to you. Mm. If, you're, if you have the kind of boss who says it can't be that hard too, you don't have that luxury of falling apart at work. Yeah. And yes, I am one of those people who does not believe that you show your tail in the road for the pink people mm. to see. Mm. Remember your brand. Remember yeah. who you're representing. Mm. Well, thank you oh, so Lord. much, Katrina. It has been lovely to thank have you. Thank you for having me. Here. It's good to have a chat like this. So thank you. Good. I'm going to wind it down. So thank you, everybody who's been listening. And then uh, we've had the wonderful Katrina Marshall on, sharing her lived experiences and her thoughts around, you know, being a woman of colour in the PR and comms industry. And it's been a great listen. And I hope you enjoyed that. And I will be back again with another session soon.